This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. In this episode, I welcome on the esteemed exercise physiologist and nutritionist sinus, Dr. Stacy Sims. My patients have been hearing me talk about Dr. Sims for years when I first started recommending her book, Roar. And now with so many women struggling with their metabolisms during their 40s and 50s, I asked her to come on and speak about her new book called Next Level, Your Guide to Kicking Ass, Feeling Great, and Crushing Goals Through Menopause and Beyond. There are not many people who have left me speechless during my podcast, and Dr. Sims did. Her explanation of the importance of estrogen, protein, nutrient timing, specific training stimuli, and resilience was precise, poignant, and actionable. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this episode and feel more equipped to understand with issues such as what the heck is happening to your body as you age. So without further ado, I welcome you to the next edition of the One Thing Podcast with Dr. Stacy Sims. Dr. Sims, welcome to the One Thing Podcast. It's so great to be here with you today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to dig into some discussion and talk about lots of cool things. Excellent. Yeah, so I I thought we could get started in just hearing a little bit more about your interesting background. Um, We talked a little bit before we got started how you grew up in the Bay Area and now you're living in New Zealand. Um, What were some of the turning points in your life that led you to becoming an expert in strength and conditioning and fitness? And um, how did you end up uh, sort of in this place in your life? I I think how a lot of us end up is is from more of a selfish drive when we're younger. So when I was a university student and rowing competitively for university and trying to figure out why some of the training practices and methodologies weren't quite working for the women as they were for men. And at the same time, getting into ex-phys and reading the textbooks and reading the studies and still not finding answers and then asking questions. And they're like, yeah, we just study men. I'm like, that doesn't work for me. So it's the early days of getting the answers of we don't know enough about men. Why do we study women? Women aren't included in studies. They're just the same as men. And when you start pulling a step back going, well, I'm pretty sure men don't get menstrual cycles. I'm pretty sure that, you know, when we look at endurance versus sprint performance, that there are some differences. So it was that kind of drive from both as an athletic standpoint, but also as a interested young asking why academic that kind of drove me down this path to really dig in and find out what are the differences, but then disseminate it out. Because there's a lot of good it does for me to have it in my brain if it doesn't work to like push it out and enhance other people's lives. Wonderful. So did you coin the phrase, women aren't small men? Yeah. So that came from um, when I was 
teaching and I'd have undergraduate classes after lunch and try to wake people up. And it was all about sex differences in training principles and practices or thermoregulation. And I'd say, you know, women are not small men. And the girls in the class would be like, yeah. And the guys would wake up and be like, whoa, what do you mean by that? So it was a way to like grab the attention just with that tagline. And then when I um, got out of full-time academia and launched a sport nutrition company, that became our women's line tagline. And it just resonated so much with so many people in the fitness space. Then it just became the mantra, women are not small men. Yeah, it really works. Um, Especially, I think you... I first was introduced to it through your first book, Roar. And uh, when I'm communicating with my patients about, you know, they're working out with this particular trainer or they're, you know, following this particular um, guru in fitness, and it's not really directed towards men, um, they really connect to that. That, you know, someone who understands the differences and and uh, the nuances and how we should not just sort of be following this blanket approach that was mainly geared towards men. Yeah. And it's good to see that there are more and more people who are actually acknowledging it, except um, except in the research space where I'll read a title of a paper and I'll be like, immediately, I wonder who they studied. And you go look and it's just men, but they don't put for men or by men in the title. Whereas if you read an academic paper and it's like caffeine effects on women, but if it was just on men, it'd be just caffeine effects. So there's still that discrepancy right. and people who are translating it into popular media, they don't have that eye to it. So then they just perpetuate it. Now, this is for everyone. So when people are really digging in and going, hey, wait a second, how does this apply to women? And then take that and run with it. I'm like, thank goodness, there's more voices out there and it's becoming more appropriate to talk about what's appropriate for women. Mm-hmm. And so with your your platform, uh, what are you what are you up to these days? Like what's your your main focus in your day-to-day life? Oh, gosh, it depends on the day. (laughs) So (laughs) I'd say uh, a lot of it right now is we're revamping the menopause for athletes course because a new science comes out, and so it's about two years old. So we're just revamping that and pushing that out. And we also have um, micro-learning. So it's like one-hour deep dive into a topic like what's collagen, giving the science background, the applications, because – my goal from those kinds of things is for someone to walk into any kind of store or call up a, a website that sells products and be able to look at the label and see if that is actually what they need. Um, so really kind of get deep dive information out in small doses and then have the bigger information in the courses. So that's kind of the Dr. Stacey Sims ethos thing. But then I have a lot of research projects going as well with PhD students in industry so we're doing ACL um, rehabilitation based on menstrual cycle phase. We're looking at sex differences and concussion, how to come back from that. Looking at um, gut microbiome changes in athletes. Uh, gosh, what else are we doing? Um, ultra running. So lots of little projects that should be out there that have been taking a long time to get out there, but finally have motivated students and teams around us to be able to get the research done. Great. And you didn't mention your new book here. I'm going to hold uh, it up the uh, next yeah. level. Um, how, uh, how many years in the making was next level? Not as long as Roar. So next level actually was delayed because of the COVID pandemic and trying to get it published. So I'd say that we spent 
a good two years writing it and getting upskilled on the research that was coming out. And during COVID, there was a lot of reviews and things that came out, which was good. Um, and so when it finally launched in May, I was like, yay, finally, because I was expecting it to be out like the September before, and then it was going to be January. So it kept getting pushed. Um, and then on the backside of that, we also got the okay to update Roar. So now that's the other project that we're working on. Because Roar was launched in 2016, and there's a lot of things in there that should be updated with regards to new turnover science, not basic physiology. So after next level and pushing all of that, then we're got the okay to update Roar, which is exciting. Excellent. So we started our conversation offline talking about how a number of people that I've worked with, I've turned towards your work that were um, first introduced through Roar. And now a number of those patients of mine are going through the menopausal transition. And there's tweaks and nuances to the menopausal transition that they're needing to learn. And that's kind of how we got together is to sort of talk about the menopausal transition and how your work has started to um, highlight the differences between that part of life and other parts of life. And um, I'd love to just kind of go into some basic um, like overview about the menopausal transition and maybe why is it so challenging metabolically for women? Yeah, a lot of people forget about puberty when we start looking at this. Like when girls go through puberty, they have all sorts of body composition changes and you know, it ends with having a menstrual cycle. Now, the other end of the reproductive years is when these hormones start to flatline. So if we think back to puberty and how all these hormones affected body composition, muscle integrity, cognition, um, reaction, all of those things, it stands to reason that when those hormones start to flatline, all those systems are affected as well. And it is, it's, we're looking at, you know, the epigenetic exposure of hormones and how that causes changes. So when they start to flatline, your systems are like, Hey, wait a second, what's happening here? So we have uh, estrogen progesterone withdrawal responses. So if we're looking at what's happening from a metabolic standpoint, we know that estrogen is directly tied to the myosin filament of actin myosin, and it's responsible for strong muscle contractions. And when those estrogen receptors aren't getting the estrogen and they're becoming desensitized and they're not being stimulated, then the myosin starts to kind of fall off as integrity. So we have to look at external stressors to stimulate the body to adapt how these hormones used to help us. And when we start looking at it from that perspective, we understand what's going on with regards to why we're losing lean mass. Why are we losing bone mineral density? Why are we putting on more visceral adiposity? And what can we do to counter it? We have to look to the eye of those external stressors to tell the body, hey, wait, 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 wait. We still have these challenges from a phys physicality and a metabolic standpoint. So let's not wind down the clock yet and create this um, conservative uh, metabolic system where we're just having a lot of fat and no lean mass. Hmm. So how's that different than uh, sarcopenia? When we hear that term. Is it related or? Is oh, well, sarcopenia is more age related. So we'll start to see more sarcopenia occurring in the mid to late menopausal years. And that is definitely wasting of muscle tissue and having more fatty acid or, and fat deposits within the muscle. But when we're looking at the menopausal transition, we are starting to lose lean mass, but it's not 
being replaced with fat cells. It's just being lost because we need amino acids and we don't have as much of a muscle protein stimulus. We become more anabolically resistant to building lean mass and that MPS stimulus. So we don't have to fall into the idea that we're all going to become sarcopenic because it is a different pathway. But with the menopause transition, perimenopause into postmenopause, there's definitely the signal to lose lean mass primarily because of the stimulus that we're not giving it and the fact that we have more of a resistance to anabolic stimulus within the body. So we need to look at what kind of training can we do? Definitely resistance training, heavy resistance training, and increasing protein. We need more protein and more amino acids to overcome that um, anabolic resistance because we need a different threshold. So if we're looking at what are we doing and what kind of different thresholds we have for amino acid circulation, then we can promote lean mass development and we can slow down the rate of loss. Matter of fact, we can actually build mass if we're eating appropriately and taking care of our bodies in the way that it needs to at this transition. Okay. So on a, from a bird's eye view, the, the muscles not getting the same stimulus that, um, the muscle fibers are not getting the same stimulus as they would have maybe five or 10 years prior. And because of that, the metabolism is changing and shifting. Absolutely. Yeah. So if we're looking at um, not only from a metabolic standpoint, but from a central nervous system standpoint as well, because when we're looking at what exactly is happening when we start having the downturn of our hormones, we're having changes within the hypothalamus. So we're having changes within the sensitivity of our estrogen receptor sites, as well as the density of them. So it is a central nervous system as well as a metabolic response. So again, it's like, what are we doing to actually stimulate the hypothalamus to be like, hey, wait a second, we still need this. We still have these things coming in and we still need luteinizing hormone and we still need the ability for muscle protein synthesis and we still need the ability for thermoregulation. I love that you I love that you bring that into the conversation because you know so much of what changes is seemingly um, motivation or lack of oomph as it's kind of described um, and sort of like a loss of drive and that ability to kind of just push push through um, whether it's your training session or just like desire to train hard. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm interested in hearing a little more about that connection. Yeah, so we often say it's like brain fog, right? And there's a there's a couple of things to kind of unpack here. Um, we look first at sleep, right? So we're looking at the menopause transition and how sleep architecture changes. So we're seeing that the way estrogen and, and melatonin interact, it's not the same when we start having more estrogen dominance or a change in the ratio of estrogen progesterone. So we're not getting the dopamine and the melatonin we need to get into that proper sleep architecture. So we have greater sympathetic drive. We also have more um, aspects of sleep deprivation. And women are walking around feeling very tired but wired. So we have that aspect of sleep. But then when we look from a neurotransmitter point of view, when we look at estrogen, and estrogen readily crosses the blood-brain barrier, and it when it gets into more elevated aspects within the brain it not only increases the density of serotonin receptors, so it makes 
the brain more sensitive to serotonin. It also upregulates and, and allows more serotonin to be produced as well as stops it from being degraded. So when you have a lot of serotonin coming up and then all of a sudden an estrogen falls, and you have an, a serotonin dump, you have all these mood changes and it can be anxiety. It can be um, lack of oomph, as you say, it could be ang- um, depression. It can be a lot of things from these neuromuscular or neurotransmitter aspects. And we also have a downregulation of dopamine that happens when estrogen is fluctuating so much. So it's it's not surprising that we're having sleep interruption, we're having mood disorder and mood changes. And we also are looking at women at a time in their lives when they're super busy, when they have either young kids or teenagers, older parents, they might be coming at the cusp of their career or they're supporting their partner who's coming at the top of their career. So there's a lot of endemic stress around it too. So when your body is already in that sympathetic drive from changes that are happening with elevated cortisol and neurotransmitter changes, and then the external stressors that create another layer of sympathetic drive, it's really not surprising that women are in this state of I'm not motivated, I'm tired, I can't train. When I do train, I'm not seeing any results and I'm just in this downward spiral. So we can sit yeah. here and completely unpack it and give steps of like, how do we get through this? What do I do? Yeah, I love that you talk about the word fluctuating because that's exactly how I I would describe um, this transition, it's just a, it's just one big state of fluctuation because one month your hormone levels might be sitting okay and you might be hitting like an uptick. And then the next two months they might be shifting into further into the menopausal trans- transition and then they make a rebound the fourth month. And I, I think it's so hard for, uh, at least from what I've heard um, and seen, it's so hard to just be consistent because it's just all over the map. Absolutely. When we look at graphs that have been um, presented, so you have like your nice little normal menstrual cycle with the upsurge of estrogen progesterone, and then it comes down and you have the bleed phase. And so it's really regular. But then when you see graphs of what's happening in that perimenopause transition, it's like a little kid has drawn all over the graph. It's all over the show. And you have different patterns, like women could be estrogen dominant, or they could have low estrogen and at some points elevated progesterone, or they'd be both low in both of them. So there's so many different points. And this is why there aren't any blanket statements of what to do, because everyone is experiencing it in a different and individualized approach. Yeah. And thankfully, now there's an acceptance even more and more of supporting women through this phase. And, you know, we're getting away from the era of you know, just sort of ride it out and let this happen. And people are are developing more of an awareness and uh, and support from the research to to help women during this this chapter of life. Um, so there's a number of things you talk about in your book that are supportive measures and supportive strategies. I would love to. And one of the unique things about your work is just the real healthy relationship you have with food. Um, I just, it's really refreshing. And one of the main reasons I refer people to your work is that I will say that jumps out um, so strongly. Can you talk about where you, what was sort of the moments when you started to see how, how much nutrition, you know, sort of played a, plays a role and how under nutrition was sort of a, um, 
was problematic? Yeah. So this also stems from um, early days because when I was in high school, I swear and I swore to my parents, I'm like, I'm going to be a chef because I was living in San Francisco and you're in that bubble of sustainability before it became like trendy to be sustainable. And, you know, I was a little bit green working for Friends of the River and just a whole bunch of stuff and understanding the agriculture and the nuances of how good food actually nourishes the body. Like I was right next to Green's Restaurant, which is one of the first vegetarian restaurants, but it wasn't about being vegetarian. It was about being sustainable and nourishing your body. So then as I got into athletics and my parents are like, no, you can't be a chef. I was like, wait a second, in order to like be healthy, you have to have good food. And being surrounded by endurance athletes and seeing, you know, the disordered eating or people trying to out-train a bad diet, I was like, this doesn't work. And then you start hearing these stories about women who have been amenorrheic for most of their collegiate years because they're trying to be runners or rowers or whatever it is, and they're always injured. So when you start really digging into it and understanding the physiology behind it, you're like, well, of course you need to eat because your body isn't an algorithm that's like, I need X amount of calories every day. You have fluctuations because some days you're more active than others, but you do need a baseline intake just to exist. And when we see online calculators and you're working with people who are like in the bodybuilding and fitness world and they're dropping calories down to a thousand or 1100 calories a day, it's like, wait a second, that's not even enough to feed a toddler. When you're thinking about all the systems in the body and if you're not eating enough, then again, hypothalamus is like, wait, what's going on? Like we don't have enough nutrition coming in to support all the systems of our body. We must need to be conserving. So you'll see people who are under eating and their body starts to break down because the body is like, I need, I need stuff to keep going. So I'm going to break down lean mass. I'm going to break down bone. I'm going to stay in this catabolic state and I'm going to store everything that's coming in as fat. And when we're looking at active women who start to experience that, unfortunately, coming from like the 80s mentality of calorie in, calorie out, then we get into this whole quagmire of I need to exercise more and eat less, which then compounds the situation. So when we look at the nutrition standpoint, I always look at it as what would you do for your child? Would you starve your child? Probably not. You want them to be able to grow and flourish and you want good food around them, not packaged stuff. So why are we not doing that for ourselves? Why are we not supporting our body and our tissue growth with good food for ourselves? And we start talking about it from that more holistic standpoint, the people get it. They're like, oh yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make my child go all day on a cup of coffee and a protein bar. So why am I doing that to myself? Yeah. Yeah. I like the lens of looking through it from a standpoint of like performance, like how nutrition helps you perform better in life, you know, versus, you know, just focusing on physique alone. Uh, if you're not able to, if you're not able to um, go to the gym or go out for a hike and have the energy to, to actually perform, you know, it's, it, it's questionable that, that strategy. Oops. Yeah. Um, I was in a conversation yesterday with a couple of friends and 
one of them is working for a training company. So like online training platform and the issue of weight management comes up. And I was like, I don't like that whole conversation because then people's objective and goal becomes losing weight and weight management where they forget to have fun and they forget that if they plan and they follow the plan, then body composition change is the positive outcome of it. It's not the focus. So if you're focused on getting strong, getting better sleep, maybe fueling for your workouts, all of those things are going to feed forward because you're going to be able to take on more stress. If you're able to take on more stress, your body adapts. If your body adapts, you get fitter. And it also is like, well, if I'm getting fitter and I'm stronger, then body fat kind of comes off and we start to see body composition changes, not weight on the scale. I hate it when people are all so focused on weight on the scale because it does not represent what's going on within the body. So we follow a plan. You follow a plan. It might be undulating every three weeks. You're changing something. But maybe for these three weeks, I'm focusing just on strength. And then I have a little bit of a break. But it has to be fun, especially when we're not being paid because we're not professional athletes. We're doing this because we want to better our health. We want to have fun. We want to be social. So if it's not fun and you're so focused on numbers, then it's not going to be beneficial. It's going to seriously degrade mental health. And you're going to get so frustrated when you're not seeing outcomes that you want. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's unpack a few of these principles with um, nutrition. Uh, you talk a lot about the importance of protein uh and also um, nutrient timing. Uh, maybe just uh, if sharing a little bit about the those. You already did talk a little bit about the importance of amino acids and um, when it relates to menopause. Maybe tie in some of that with uh, the menopause's protein and nutrient timing and, and how that plays a role. Yeah, so I'll start a little bit with the nutrient timing aspect. And it's more important for women to understand that we do better in a fed state. When we're looking at sex differences from birth, we have distinct differences within the muscle that allow us to already be super endurant and be able to burn a lot of fat for fuel. So we look at fasted training and getting blood glucose control and better cognition and that parasympathetic outcome. That's all based on male data. When we start looking at what's happening for women, we start seeing glucose intolerance. We start seeing more of a sympathetic drive. We see a greater amount of visceral adiposity. So when we're talking about timing of our food, we want to think about it as how are we fueling for the stress in the day? So if we get up and we're like, I have to do this training session, even if it's only 20 minutes, and you're like, I only have 20 minutes, it's not on the back of a black cup of coffee. It might be coffee with some protein in it or half a banana in your coffee so that you are signaling to the hypothalamus, yes, there's some nutrition coming in. And then you follow it up with breakfast. So then the hypothalamus is like, oh, that was a strong stress, but I can overcome it and I can start repairing because I have nutrition coming in. Whereas if we look and women who get up early and they do the black cup of coffee and they go do their training session and then they don't eat because they're busy trying to get the kids out the door and they're delaying, 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 and they finally have food at like 10 o'clock. You have this huge window where the signal to the brain is breakdown, breakdown, breakdown. You're staying in this catabolic state and the hypothalamus is like, I need to conserve. So it's effectively reading you as being in low energy availability. 
And we've talked about that. If you're in low energy availability, thyroid goes down, you have endocrine dysfunction, immune system gets a hit. So we start really focusing on, okay, what do we need to do for the day? How do we get through this? We fuel for the stress at hand, both exercise and life stress. And then if you want to play around with some of the trendy fasting stuff, then it's stop eating after dinner and then eat at breakfast. So you have a good 12 hour window. And that's how the body should work anyway, because we're talking about circadian rhythms and your body needs fuel when it's awake in the day and maybe not so much while it's sleeping and trying to ultimately repair. So we talk about that nutrient timing. It's so important for women to fuel for what they are doing to get outcomes, both from being able to increase parasympathetic drive and get out of that sympathetic state, as well as to garner the adaptations from the physical activity that they're doing. When we talk about protein in the menopause transition and postmenopause, as I said, our tissues are becoming more anabolic resistant. So that means that we're not able to really read the signals for building tissue, especially lean mass. So when we talk about protein post-exercise and we see research that's saying, hey, chocolate milk is great. It's great if you're a young man, but it's not enough protein for women. We need 30 to 40 grams post-exercise in order to reach that leucine threshold to trigger muscle protein synthesis, especially for having these perturbations in estrogen because of that, that down-regulation of estrogen um, receptor sites, as well as a down-regulation of insulin growth factor one, which is also important for muscle protein synthesis. So protein becomes really important. And a lot of women don't realize how much protein they need to eat in a day. So instead of giving blanket, hey, you need two grams per kilogram of body weight, we go, okay, at every meal, you need 30 to 35 grams, every snack around 15 grams. And if you have a big training session, you definitely want to hit that 30 grams post-exercise. And when people start looking at it, it's like, that's doable. That's doable. Because, you know, a serving about a 25 gram serving is about the size of your palm. So you're like, okay, I can do that. And then I can add some more things. It's easy to hit that 30 grams for a meal. But it's super important to dose that protein throughout the day so that you have amino acids circulating to improve muscle protein synthesis and to support neurotransmitter health because we already know that that's taking a hit with all these fluctuations of estrogen and progesterone. Wow. Wow. That was amazing. Thank you. Uh, I'm sort of speechless <laughs> after hearing all that. <laughs> that You're was welcome. great. I, I really just resonated with, with that whole view that you just painted. Um, thank you. Um, let's go into exercise stimulus and why should we lift heavy? What, what's, what's going on? Let's compare that to the days of Jane Fonda. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And when, if people are too young to remember, you know, kind of, uh, the aerobics, uh, wearing the, well, I won't even go into what they used the to The leg wear, warmers and the leotards. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the history of strength training women is really interesting because it's always been like the fringe thing. So when Jane Fonda came in, it's like, let's do aerobic exercise. It was kind of a turning point. But the fact of the matter that she didn't add in resistance training is a little bit of a fault that women still follow where they're still like cardio, cardio, cardio. It's even in gyms. If you walk into a gym, right, it's very masculine in the lifting area. And then you see all the women who are pushed over to the cardiovascular area and it might be painted up in, in nice little feminine colors. So it's just being perpetuated in the social stigma that we have. 
But when we look at resistance training, women who are younger and have good estrogen can get away with higher reps because they have estrogen that's stimulating the myosin and we have really good recovery from a central nervous system standpoint. But as we get older, knowing that women don't age in a linear fashion like men, when we hit the perimenopause into postmenopause, that's more the equivalent of men in their late 60s when you're looking at research and what's happening from an anabolic stimulus standpoint. So what we need to do is we need to look at what kind of stress, again, is going to help us with lean mass. So for lifting heavy, it does two things. One, it stimulates the neuromuscular system to have a very strong nerve reaction to come down and try to recruit as many fibers as possible to overcome that load to lift it. If you're getting that stimulus, then you're getting more fibers involved, which maintains the integrity of those fibers. Not only that, when you're doing that strong load, you're also getting the signal that, hey, we need myosin to work really well because a muscle contraction is actin myosin coming together and linking and then releasing. So if we don't have really good myosin, then we're not going to have a strong contraction. So both of those two aspects get stimulated through heavy lifting. And women do better with power type lifting anyway, and not endurance type lifting, regardless of age. But like I said, when you're younger, you can get away with body weight stuff and the high reps, and you're not going to get overly big because most women don't eat enough anyway. But as you get into perimenopause and older, you definitely need to focus on the power type training, the three to five sets, three to five reps, three to five minutes recovery in between, because you want it from a neuromuscular standpoint, not a cardiovascular workout. And that's how we can start to overcome a lot of this anabolic resistance, build and maintain our lean mass. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I, I love how most of what we've talked about so far, if we've kind of dialed it down between the nutrient timing, the protein, the, the heavy lifting heavy, all of it is contributing and preventing some of the sequelae of um, some of the problems that can develop in menopause, like um, osteoporosis. And, you know, so this is uh, what we're talking about is helping bone health as well and, you know, preventing falls yeah. and preventing fracture. Yeah. And I mean, there have been a couple of studies that have come out recently looking at the heavier lifting power based stuff in older women who are 70 and older. And when they switch away from the light 10 to 12 rep and put in the heavier um, three to six rep, not only do they build lean mass at that age, but they also have better uh, coordination and balance. So if they happen to accidentally step off a curb, they don't fall and break something. So it's that reaction time that you also get with that neuromuscular connection. Right, yeah, and I think, uh... What's been remarkable to see is I think when powerlifting first came onto the into the kind of lay world with like CrossFit and those types of things, there was tons of injuries and people were just doing all the lifts wrong. And I mean, they would be excited uh, about their new program because it's, you know, it's exciting and uh, there was camaraderie and then they get injured two weeks later. Now, I think it's really matured and there's some real uh, more education about how to learn heavier lifting strategies and power lifting. And I think that's really important for listeners is just to not jump right in if you've never done this stuff, because the shoulders need to have mobility, the hips need to have mobility. And um, you can really, uh, if you're if you're doing this stuff on tight muscles, it's not as, uh, as no. safe. We always say, you know, I don't want any, well, we as in the the team around us, right? We're like, 
I don't want anyone to go into the gym and try to deadlift 100 kilos. Like if you've never seen a bar before, we want to look at it as the eye to health where you're taking a good month to two months for mobility, learning how you move, seeing where your muscle patterns are, getting that brace stability so that when you do start adding load, your joints and your muscles can respond to that load. So it's a, it's a phase in for lifting heavy. It's a phase in for resistance training because the last thing in the world I would want is someone to go in and try to do heavy lifting, get injured, and then never want to do resistance training again again, because it is a really good central nervous system. And it's a way to really emphasize not only the strength component, but the after effects of growth hormone, you have an anti-inflammatory response, anti-oxidative response, and you have a greater parasympathetic drive for better sleep. So when we're looking at heavy lifting, it's more than just in the moment. It's that long-term, let's work on that mobility and that movement and then add the load. Yeah. And I also want to point out that I think you would be in agreement at that cardio and, and we'll talk a little bit more about um, HIT um, training in a second, but uh, cardio is still very important. And this this doesn't take away from the importance of the exercise effect of cardiovascular exercise, the brain effect, the, um, you know, the heart effect and just sort of the overall well-being effect. Absolutely. So I get questions where like, what, do you want me to replace everything with heavy lifting? No, no, no. It's a complement. If you're an endurance athlete, then you think about in the endurance and the cardio being the complement to the lifting and the intensity. But we look at the data for intensity work, especially in menopause transition. It's super important to put in the sit and the hit, not only for better metabolic control and having epigenetic changes within the muscle so you can use glucose and you don't become as insulin resistant as, as you would if you didn't do it. But also we know that the short, sharp intervals are so great for cardiovascular health. We also get that boost in BDNF for brain health. We get more um, brain tissue growth. But then the other side of things is adding that resistance training in. We get an impetus for better nerve growth factor within the brain from the resistance training. So they both complement for overall health from that cardiovascular and metabolic and the brain health aspect. Yeah. So you talk about um, high intensity interval training um, and a specific form of it called SIT um, and the metabolic changes one might experience when having that be part of the workout. Can you can you share a little bit about that? I know we only have a little bit more time together, but I'd love to hear some comments on that. Yeah, so the big buzz, I guess, in the fitness industry is HIT, high intensity interval training. And we'll see all forms of it, like Orange Theory, F45, boot camp classes, but that's not true hit, because if you're looking at a 45 to 60 minute class, that's moderate intensity. When we're talking about true hit. This is one to two minute intervals that on a rating of perceived exertion, you're sitting around a seven or an eight. Then the other subset of hit is called sprint interval training. And so sprint interval training is even shorter intervals. It's 20 to 30 seconds with a good two to three minutes in between. Because when you do a sprint interval, you want to be able to go as hard as you can on a rating perceived exertion, a nine or 10, but you have to recover enough to do that again. And the first time you do it, you might only make three of those and then you're fully gassed out, which is fine. It takes time to build up. But the reason why we want to do that top, top end is it does create this, like I said earlier, an epigenetic change within the muscle to enhance 
uh, GLUT4 gate. So GLUT4 is a protein-oriented gate that opens up to allow carbohydrate and glucose to come into the muscle without such a reliance on insulin. And it's important to understand that because there's a tie of insulin, insulin growth factor one, and estrogen that helps with metabolic control. So as we lose estrogen, we're also losing one of the pathways for that metabolic control. So if we're using the SIT, then it is a way of having external stress to help what estrogen used to do. If we're looking at HIIT training, so that's longer intervals and maybe a, a two-to-one recovery, so two minutes on, four minutes off. That's another way for metabolic control. It's above threshold, and you're telling your body how to maintain the power and to maintain the speed aspect that we lose as we get older, especially women who then, you know, we lose our hormones and we default to that long, slow distance. When we talk about things like F45, Orange Theory, boot camp classes, and we fall into a moderate intensity thinking that it's hit, we end up with too much cortisol. And when you have too much cortisol, mm -hmm. we already have a higher baseline of cortisol at this point in women's lives because of the sympathetic drive and all of the changes that are happening. So if you stay in this moderate intensity zone that's too hard to be truly easy and it's too easy to be truly hard, then it's kind of a moot point because you have elevated cortisol, but no extra response of growth hormone or anti-inflammatory or antioxidant responses that come with it. So you're just effectively raising your cortisol level. So we hear this, how women who are perimenopause, postmenopause shouldn't do HIIT training because it raises cortisol. The follow through is if you do HIIT training and SIT training properly, you have, yes, a slight increase in cortisol acutely, but the growth hormone and the antioxidant and anti-inflammatory responses that occur with it drop that cortisol so you don't get an elevation of cortisol, but you actually have better adaptation and better changes within the body that support metabolic control, cardiovascular health, and brain health. I love that. Yeah, so it's... Uh it's so helpful to hear like what the proper dose and intensity and proper stimulus is to get the desired effect. Like what a concept <laughs> versus it's uh, it's so refreshing because uh, you know, no wonder people are feeling so lost when you know, their blood sugar is going high after a 45 minute hit session and they don't know why um, well their cortisol is going high and you know, there's, just so much that we just don't know um, until you really study this like you do. And I really appreciate you sharing those details with us. It's very yeah. helpful. Like I have people who are, oh, well, I can't work out for an hour. I'm like, you don't need an hour. Like you could do all, you could do a heavy lifting session followed by a sprint interval session done and dusted in 30 or 35 minutes. Because if you're doing the heavy lifting properly, you might be doing two exercises. So maybe you're doing uh box squats, and then single leg lunges. That's it for heavy lifting because then your central nervous system is taxed out. And then you hit the bike or the treadmill or the rower and you do a couple of 20, 30 second bursts. And that in itself is so much more taxing than spending the hour or so on the elliptical or doing one of the boot camp classes. And you're going to get all the benefits of that high intensity work as well as the benefits from the heavy lifting. So when you start looking at the time yeah. involved... It's dropping the volume and getting that intensity up. Yeah. So I have this uh, love of jump roping as a form of exercise. Am I, am I completely off with that? Or is that, is it what I think it it's is? It's great. 
one, it's high intensity. And two, it's multi-directional stress for your bones. And we know that to improve bone health, running isn't enough. You need that multi-directional stress from jumping. So jump roping or plyometric work is fantastic for bone health. And then you also get an increase in your tendon and ligament and, and muscle strength too. Yeah. Uh, I There was a guy when I was way back in the day when I was a personal trainer, there was this 90-year-old man that would come in and jump rope every day. Um, and as I'm approaching, getting closer and closer to his age, I'm like, I'm going to be that guy. Definitely. <laughs> Just keep yeah, jump roping. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Not in Richard Simmons shorts, but, you know. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> we got a little little cooler, so we yeah, think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So I would love to just wrap up here with uh, just some closing thoughts. And, you know, if people are inspired to follow your work or continue on this journey of learning with you, what would they do next? But there's a couple of ways about it. Like you can go to our website, drstacysims.com. So it's the DR um, and sign up for our newsletter and you get free information every couple of weeks that keeps you kind of in in the realm of what we're doing with regards to new microlearning topics, courses, um, different uh, seminars and things. Or you could just follow me on social media, which is Facebook and Instagram, Dr. Stacey Sims. And that gives you little hits of information every day. And we also say, hey, this is coming up. Maybe you're interested and we can keep you in the loop that way too. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time, Stacy. This has been so fascinating. I'm going to have to listen to this like four or five awesome. times uh, to integrate it. That's my favorite kind of podcast. And uh, thank you once again for your generosity. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from it. Forward the, the episode to them, and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the one thing podcast and again much appreciation for you being here with me